Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. Are you a World of Warbirds fan? If so, you can help keep this podcast going by supporting it through PayPal at WOWB17. You can also give the podcast a good review, and you can also like and share the Facebook page. These things all help me out. Although I haven't been there yet, I've got a thing for Australia. Back when I was in high school or early college, there was kind of a North American obsession with Australia going on. We listened to a lot of music from down under, including In Excess, Men at Work, Crowded House. I saw Midnight Oil in concert twice. We watched the Crocodile Dundee movies. In high school, we had an opportunity to sign up for a pen pal program, and somehow I snagged three Australian girls. I still keep in touch with Nicole on Facebook. There does seem to be a lot of traffic between the two nations. I personally know of at least five Canadian-Australian marriages that have resulted in one or the other spouse making the move across the Pacific. Lastly, according to my podcast, Analytics, Australia is the number two country in terms of my audience, just after the USA. I've got more Australian listeners than Canadian ones. So after getting a couple of requests, namely from Connor DeVeth and Grant Reed from Down Under to look at Australian aviation during World War II, let's dive in. I don't think I'm alone in thinking that Australia is kind of a southern twin to Canada. Both countries are daughters of the British Empire, and aviation-wise there are many similarities too. Both countries are pretty sparsely populated with a whole lot of empty spaces that were perfectly suited for aviation to help bridge. But also, both were on the slow side to develop their own aviation industries compared with Britain and the US. But there are some major differences too, and these factors would play a huge role in the impetus to create what would be known as the CAC, or the Commonwealth Aircraft Corporation. One big difference is the proximity, or lack thereof, to the USA. Canada is literally glued to the States. We give them all their bad weather, according to their TV forecasters, and we supply them with a place for their 18 to 20 year olds to come to drink and party before they are allowed in the United States. But if we look back at the war years, there was never any danger of not having access to the US markets, aviation parts and material, or even finished aircraft. Hell, a good number of American aircraft came through Canada on their way to Europe. Speaking of Europe, Canada isn't that far either. Albeit, if you were on a corvette or destroyer, shepherding a convoy of slow merchant ships through U-boat infested waters, I guess it would seem pretty far. But, aviation-wise, if you were lucky with your weather, you could have an aircraft go from... North America to the UK, or vice versa, in a day or two. These proximities did not exist for Australia. There is a lot of ocean between Australia and the UK, 
and also just as importantly, not enough ocean between Australia and Japan. These thoughts, along with the buzz of a looming world war, were on the mind of Essington Lewis when he visited Europe in 1935. He was the chief general manager of BHP, the Broken Hill Proprietary Company, which was, and still is, a major mining, metals, and petroleum concern. It is now known as BHP Group Limited. Anyway, when he got back home, he brought back worries that if the situation in Europe went sideways, Australia might get cut off from its traditional sources of aviation products from Britain. After getting the go-ahead from the government, he got a bunch of Australian companies to talk together and it didn't take long for BHP, General Motors Holden, Imperial Chemicals Industries, Orient Steam Navigation Company, and the Electrolytic Zinc Company to form CAC, the Commonwealth Aircraft Corporation. The very next year, in 1936, they bought land and built a factory in Port Melbourne. But if you were listening closely to the list of companies that made up CAC, did you notice anything missing? Yeah, any aviation companies. Somebody had better have some experience in actually building airplanes. So the CAC bought Tuggan Aircraft, also in 1936. Tuggan being a mashup of the founders' names, Leo Turrell and Frank Gannon. Turrell and Gannon. Now, when I said they had experience, I guess they might have had more than, let's say, a smelting company. But we're not talking Boeing here. They had built nine examples of the Generco airplane, which was Tiger Moth-based. They had tried to purchase a license to produce the Miles Hawk, but talks broke down and none were built. Tuggan then tried to build what has been described as a, in quotes, a type broadly similar to, close quotes, the Percival Gull. This sounds like copying, but <laughs> no judgment. It was going to be called the Tuggan Aircraft Hawk. Although they got quite far in the work involved, for some reason, none were built. Finally, they built a winner with the Tuggan LJW-7 Gannett, a steel tube, fabric, and wood, high-wing, twin-engined airliner, which looks a little bit like a land-based Grumman Goose, if you can see that in your mind's eye. It was also known as, and I much prefer this name, the Wackett Gannett, after its designer, Lawrence Wackett. This little airliner was operated between Sydney and Broken Hill by Butler Air Transport. It did survey work and was the first Australian-built aircraft to be taken on strength by the Royal Australian Air Force in Number 2 Air Ambulance Unit. If it seems like they built a lot of them... No, they didn't. They only built eight. <laughs> so, with this limited experience of building a limited number of light fabric-covered transport aircraft, the big question for the CAC now was what to build. There were fierce debates on this subject. Of course, some wanted to jump into the deep end and start building Spitfires. 
but this was thought to be too much of a stretch for this brand new company with its limited experience. Now I need to introduce you, or shall I say reintroduce you, to Lawrence Wackett. Wing Commander Sir Lawrence James Wackett, KBE, DFC, AFC. Now maybe he's a known figure in Australia, but I had never heard of him. But I am now happy to tell you about this guy, who reminds me a bit of Jimmy Doolittle, a man who was involved in every facet of aviation. Wackett was born in Townsville, Queensland on 2nd of January, 1896. As a young man, he joined the Australian Army, attended the Royal Military Cottage in Duntroon, and joined Number 1 Squadron of Australian Flying Corps, AFC, and in March of 1916, shipped out as one of the 12 pilots that went to Egypt in support of the Sinai and Palestine campaign. In 1917, he came up with the idea of attaching a Lewis gun to the upper wing of his BE-2C, which avoids shooting off his own propeller, and turned a weakly armed observing aircraft into a fighter. Wackett was always thinking up stuff like this, and he was known as an officer with a gift for mechanical inventions. In 1918, now a captain on the Western Front, Wackett was given the task of coming up with a way to resupply machine gun ammunition to gunners on the ground. He got right to work and came up with the container to hold the ammo, the mechanism to release it, and the technique to drop it in the right place, and then he trained his squadron to do it. Then during the Battle of Hamel, 100,000 rounds of machine gun ammo was dropped to the isolated gunners. He earned his DFC doing these ammo drops, plus doing dangerous photo recon missions. Post-war, Wackett was one of the first 21 officers who formed the new Royal Australian Air Force, RAAF. Not content just to be a throttle jockey, and career Air Force officer, he went back to school and got a Bachelor of Science degree at the University of Melbourne, and then focused on aircraft design. He entered and won second place in 1924 in the low-powered aeroplane competition, with his very first airplane design, the Warbler, which was powered by an engine that he built himself called the Wizard. He was always very concerned that Australia should develop its own aviation industry. So when we fast forward, he was the perfect man for the job of managing the CAC. In 1935, he led a technical mission to the US and Europe to check out modern aircraft types, with the goal of figuring out which one would meet Australians' needs and yet be possible to build with the country's capabilities. When it came time for the CAC to decide what they were going to build as their first aircraft, Wackett ruffled some feathers when he chose the North American NA-16, which was a predecessor of the North American Harvard or Texan. This was an American airplane, and Australia's fledgling aviation industry had, of course, always been strongly linked to the mother country. 
Also, the NA-16 was a trainer and not specifically designed to fight. But Wackett thought that the NA-16 hit the sweet spot. The aircraft itself was relatively simple and easy for the new industry to learn on. Also, it was powered by the Pratt & Whitney R1314 WASP radial engine, which was also seen as an engine that Australian industry could handle. And although the NA-16 was primarily a trainer, Wackett figured that this type could be modified for fighting work, although he clearly thought that this would be a stopgap stepping stone that would fill the gap until a proper fighter could be developed. So, with the decisions made, production licenses for the NA-16 and the WASP engine were purchased from North American Aviation and Pratt & Whitney. CAC also purchased two finished NA-16s to be models for the production process. The Australian version was to be named the CAC Wurraway, which is an Aboriginal word which means challenge, which I guess it was. Construction-wise, the CAC Wurraway was a hybrid, like the Hurricane. Parts of it, such as the fuselage, were made up of a welded steel frame covered with fabric on the sides and metal on the undersides and decking. The wings were made up of spaced ribs with stressed metal skin, but the control surfaces were fabric covered. They had split flaps and had an all-metal stressed skin construction for the tailplane and fin. The aircraft was powered by a 600 horsepower Pratt & Whitney R1340 WASP engine, license built by CAC itself. This drove a three-bladed variable pitch propeller built by de Havilland propellers. Fuel was stored within a pair of 45-gallon tanks. The aircraft could reach a respectable top speed of 191 knots. The crew of two, pilot, and gunner-slash-bomb-aimer sat tandem-style within a fully enclosed sliding canopy and both positions had flying controls. The rear seat had a nifty feature of being able to rotate so that this crewman could face rearward to operate the single swivel-mounted machine gun that was positioned there. You know, think of the SBD. Or this seat could be folded up so that the second crewman could adopt a prone or lying down position for bombing on the floor of the aircraft. Yes, this versatile little aircraft could carry a single 500-pound bomb or a pair of 250-pound bombs under the wings. It was also able to carry flares, and it had two 303-inch Vickers machine guns synchronized to fire through the propeller arc. Lastly, it could also carry two 200-pound Storpedoes, which were airdropped containers fitted with parachutes for delivering supplies and munitions to troops in the field. I think Wackett might have been involved in making sure this was possible. Also, this is the first time that I have come upon the word Storpedo, which is actually the perfect word if you think about it. On the 27th of March, 1939, the first Wurraway performed its maiden flight and was used for evaluation and testing, but two were delivered to the Air Force in July. 
when the European War broke out, the RAAF had only six completed whirlaways, and the CAC shifted into high gear to build as many as they possibly could. Turns out that the CAC could build airframes much faster than they could build engines, which meant that there were a bunch of engineless airframes kicking around. This led to the strange, upside-down situation of the British RAF, which was desperate for aircraft of any kind at the time, offering to buy up the extra airframes, ship them over to the UK, and then buy separate WASP engines from the Yanks and mount them themselves. The initial order was for 245 airframes, which was bumped up to 300, and then finally 500. Ultimately, the UK decided that lend-lease supplies from the US directly would suffice, and so no whereaways made it to RAF service. However, the existence of the CAC was wholeheartedly justified by the above, and also the statement issued by the Australian government in July 1940 advising that, open quotes, from this date forward, Australia can rely on England for no further supplies of any aircraft materials or equipment of any kind. Close quotes. When the Pacific War broke out in December 1941, Whirlaways were equipping seven RAAF squadrons and drew first blood when a group of five training Whirlaways based in Malaya were pressed into combat service against Japanese ground invasion forces. On the 6th of January 1942, Whirlaways of number 24 squadron intercepted Japanese seaplanes flying over New Britain. One dove in to attack, and although nobody was shot down, it was the first air-to-air combat between RAAF and the forces of the Empire of Japan. Two weeks after this, 24 Squadron was added again when eight Whirlaways took off to try to defend the city of Rabaul from over 100 Japanese bombers and fighters. Understandably, this didn't turn out all that well, with six of the eight Whirlaways being destroyed or heavily damaged. No one was completely surprised that the Whirlaway wasn't performing like a Spitfire. It was never intended to. It was supposed to be a stopgap fighter, and it was that and more. It was a very versatile machine, acting primarily as a trainer, but also doing aerial reconnaissance and photography, artillery spotting, dropping supplies, and even propaganda materials. It even performed a dive bombing and ground attack role. Even though it was outclassed, on the 12th of December 1942, a Whirlaway flown by pilot officer J.S. Archer, managed to shoot down what he thought was a Japanese A6M-0. He had spotted it about 1,000 feet below him, and so he dived on it, opened fire, and splashed the Japanese fighter into the sea. Later on, it was ascertained that it was a Ki-43. This was the only time that a Whirlaway shot down another aircraft, but that was still pretty good for a plane that was supposed to be a trainer with benefits. Notwithstanding the one-off shootdown, as far back as 1941, everyone knew the Whirlaway was not going to cut it going head-to-head with modern Japanese fighters and bombers. Neither were the two 
other aircraft in the Australian arsenal, which were the Lockheed Hudson medium bomber and the Pokey Brewster Buffalo fighter. Australia needed a stronger fighter force, and yesterday, but what were the options? The UK was not selling, and neither was the US, which was scrambling to equip its own squadrons. Some damaged USAAF fighters, such as the Curtis P-40 Kitty Hawk and Bell P-39 Aerocobra, sometimes ended up getting fixed up in Australian workshops and then borrowed by RAAF units. But this is no way to win a war. Who would have a solution? Hmm. <laughs> you guessed it, Lawrence Wackett again who seemed to be the MacGyver of the Australian aircraft industries. As it seemed that getting a reliable source of foreign aircraft was going to be impossible, he decided that Australia should go it alone. He knew that they needed a more powerful engine, so he borrowed some 1,200 horsepower Pratt & Whitney R1830 Twin Wasp engines, which were being made under license at the CAC plant in Lidcombe, Sydney, for Australia's Bristol Beaufort production. This was the engine used by the U.S. Navy's Grumman F-4F Wildcat fighter, so it made sense. In order to save time and resources, the new CAC fighter would also borrow as much as possible from the Wurraway. In the end, the wing, empanage, undercarriage, and center section were all taken from the Wurraway, while a new forward fuselage was to be designed to hold the bigger twin WASP engine. This would be a single-seat cockpit with a sliding canopy armed with two Hispano-Suiza HS-404 cannon and four 303 machine guns. To help with the design work, Wackett had Fred David, who was an Austrian Jew who had recently fled his homeland. He had previously worked for Heinkel before the Nazis came to power and also had worked with Mitsubishi and Aichi in Japan. So he knew all about the engineering behind the Mitsubishi A6M0 and the Heinkel Aichi 112 fighters. Wackett plucked David, who was technically an enemy alien, out of an Australian internment camp and put him to work on the new CAC project. On the 18th of February 1942, the Australian War Cabinet authorized the construction of 105 of these aircraft and the name Boomerang was selected. It looks a little like a Brewster Buffalo and an F4F Wildcat had a baby. However, maybe leaning more towards the look of the Wildcat. Amazingly, just three months after getting the go-ahead, the first prototype boomerang performed its maiden flight. The boomerang flew well, was easy to handle, and quite maneuverable. There were a few minor issues with engine cooling, so the oil cooler intake was revised, and a propeller spinner was added. In July 1942, the RAAF began formally receiving boomerangs from the CAC factory. Three RAAF squadrons, 83, 84, and 85, initially received boomerangs. 
On the 16th of May 1943, two boomerangs bounced three Mitsubishi G4M Betty bombers and attacked. Although the Bettys got away, they didn't complete their mission. Four days later, boomerangs were scrambled to defend the Australian mainland against Japanese bombers, which dumped their payloads wide of the target and left. Although the boomerang was a decent insurance policy against the possibility that Australia could not obtain modern fighters from the US or UK, it had its limitations. Granted, it had a good punch with its armament of two 20mm cannon and four 303 caliber machine guns, and great protection for the pilot with generous armor plating, but in terms of performance, it was limited. At low level, it wasn't bad, but it became pokey above altitudes of 15,000 feet when it just couldn't take on Japanese fighters like the Zero and the Oscar. Even the Grumman F4F Wildcat and the Curtis Kitty Hawk Mark I were faster than the Boomerang. So in many cases, when it was possible to re-equip squadrons with P-40s or Spitfires or Bullfighters or P-51s, this was done so. But the boomerangs continued to serve with the RAAF right up until the end of the war. However, back in 1943, after the success of getting the boomerang into production, Lawrence Wackett knew that it would be obsolete sooner rather than later, and this time decided to get the jump on a homegrown modern fighter on par with the most advanced fighters of the other nations. This effort was known as the Kangaroo. Fred David, the designer of the Boomerang, was put in charge. It was initially to be more similar to the FW-190 and powered by a radial engine, the Pratt & Whitney R-2800 Double Wasp, which was the engine that powered such successful fighters as the Grumman F-6F Hellcat, the Republic Thunderbolt, and Vought F4U Corsair. But for some reason, the double wasp was not able to be obtained, and so CAC leased some inline Rolls Royce Griffin Mark 61 engines and scrambled to fit these in the Kangaroo. The result ended up looking like a P 51. If someone like me, without any artistic ability, were to try to sketch one, CAC only ever built one kangaroo prototype, partly because they were also negotiating to build P-51s under license at around the same time, and that seemed more like a sure bet. The one prototype was flown, tested, and tinkered on until 1950 when it was finally scrapped. The CAC did end up building 200 P-51s, either as kits from North American or from scratch, which were known as CA-18 Mustangs. Only a dozen or so were ready by VJ Day, but they served for a long time, firstly in frontline squadrons and then later in the reserves until finally being retired in 1960. There are surviving examples of all the CAC aircraft discussed today. Some of them are airworthy, except for the kangaroo, which bounced right out of existence. As for Lawrence Wackett, who has kind of turned into the hero for this episode, 
He suffered tragedy when his own son, squadron leader Wilbur Lawrence Wackett, was killed flying a bowfighter in 1944. But that didn't stop Wackett from continuing to work in Australian aviation and attempting to keep homegrown aircraft on the RAAF roster, such as the license-built Sabrejet and the Dassault Mirage. He lived until the decent age of 86, passing in 1982. I hope you have enjoyed this episode as much as I did in creating it. It has been slightly different in format as it ended up looking at an industry rather than one plane. As I said in the beginning, it has many echoes of my own country, which has also struggled with trying to differentiate itself from the mother country and the United States, and has always struggled to maintain a homegrown aviation industry.